Let me start this morning with a very simple question, and it is this. Is London City Presbyterian, is it, would you say, a gospel-centered congregation? Is London City Presbyterian, is it a gospel-centered congregation? Or, I tell you what, let me adjust that question a little bit. Um, I wonder... Are you in here today as you sit here as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you today a gospel-thinking, gospel-caring, gospel-orientated, a gospel-centered child of God? Is that you this morning as you sit here today? I wonder if you see what I mean by this opening to the sermon. It's very easy for us, isn't it, to, as Christians, slide a little bit in our Christian faith and to all of a sudden kind of lose sight of the heart and the core of the Christian faith. Is that all right? Is that all right? That we can slide a little bit and before long, instead of you and I on a daily basis the, the wonders of what God has done for us in Christ. Instead of that, isn't it true we, we find ourselves thinking about the Christian faith in terms of duty, responsibilities, things like that. We find ourselves, when it comes to worship, instead of coming into this room this morning excited to see our brothers and sisters in Christ and to bow before a perfect triune God, we find ourselves ah, thinking about worship in just mechanical ways, you know, thinking about worship. If we think about it at all, think about it in vague terms and cold terms. Isn't that right? Can't that happen to us? Do you see what happens? We slide a little bit as Christians and we can lose sight of the message that is the heart of Christianity. You and I, even as Christians, we can lose sight of the good news of the gospel. Isn't that true? Well, throughout our sermon series uh, in the uh, book of Esther, what has happened, I'm sure you would agree, is that each time that we have looked at this book, we have been launched forward. That every single time that we have looked at the book of Esther, the book has almost acted like a catapult, hasn't it? Launching us forward from the book of Esther to the ground at Calvary. Where every time we've looked at the verses in Esther, actually what we've found ourselves doing is again wondering, marveling at what it, what it is that God and what Christ has done for us at Golgotha. Now here's the thing that I want you to get. That will be especially the case this morning by the power of God's Spirit. I honestly believe that as we listen to God's word and study Esther 7 today, that we're going to see just why we have to be gospel people. We're going to see in these verses this morning more of the depths and I think more of the realities of just what it is that Christ has achieved for you and for me at that cross. So, with those things said, 
Uh, I wonder, would you do this with me? Would you turn back to the reading? Would you turn? Would you have a scripture open? So it is Esther, and it's Esther chapter 7. And if you're using this church Bible, then you'll find the, the reading, the section of scripture, on page 506. So it's Esther chapter 7 on page 506. And the first thing that I, I think we need to notice in this portion of scripture is the identification that we see here with a condemned people. So that's the first thing that we need to, 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 to notice, that we need to highlight here. There is, in these verses, uh, the identification with a condemned people. <laughs> okay, this is an understatement uh, that I'm going to say here, but it's probably useful after what is a just light break from our series in the book of Esther uh, for various uh, reasons. It's probably necessary for us to rift our memories a little bit about what's happening in this book. I'm sure you'd agree with that. So what have we seen in the book of Esther as a congregation? What have we seen? Well, I'm sure you remember that we have said that the first half of the book of Esther, it's a pretty dark place to be, isn't it? That because Mordecai the Jew had refused to bow to him, do you remember what happened? That Haman the Agagite, that he had issued a decree not only, think about this, not only for Mordecai's death, but he's issued this decree for the death of every single Jew that existed in the Persian Empire. So it's a decree of destruction for all the Jews who were living. And you must remember, this is important. It was a decree that the king himself, this man Xerxes, has rubber stamped. That will become important. The king has given his approval to this decree of death. Okay. But then, if you have got a startling memory for these things, as I know some of you do, can you remember the last episode that we looked at as a congregation? Can you remember all those weeks ago what it was? If we were speaking informally, we might say that Haman, the bad guy, that he had had a bit of a a mare, hadn't he? Haman had had a pretty disastrous day. Do you remember how it unfolded? Do you remember what happened? Haman had gone to the palace to ask for Mordecai's head, only to find what? Only to find that the king, King Xerxes, was actually determined to honor <laughs> Mordecai for his loyalty to the crown. And do you remember how the episode ended? It was absolutely fantastic, was it not? You had Haman, the bad guy, having to lead his archenemy, Mordecai, around the citadel of Susa, singing before him, really. You know, praising him, declaring his praises before him. So, you're with me, I hope. Haman, the bad guy, has had a nightmare. He has had a truly Awful day. So that's Haman. But there is, isn't there, another side eh, to the book of Esther and the story of Esther. And I tell you what, just so that we can refresh our memories, would you do this with me? Would you look at the very last verse of chapter 6? This might help us to jog our memories. Have a look here. It's the last verse of chapter 6. Verse 14, isn't it? So it says this, see if this rings any bells now. 
while they, so this is Haman, and he's speaking to his wife, remember, and he's speaking to his, his friends, while they were still talking, <laughs> eunuchs arrived to take Haman where? Do you see it? To a banquet. A banquet. What does it, does that help? What does a banquet remind us about? Yeah, it reminds us about Esther, doesn't it? And what it is that she has been doing in this story. And what had Esther done? Do you remember? That in a bid to deliver her people and at risk to her own life, she has entered into the presence of the king and invited him to, yeah, a banquet, sort of peaking Xerxes' interest. What is going on here? And then at that banquet, what has she done? She's very cleverly reeled him in further, hasn't she? Do you remember this? Why? How? By inviting him to a further banquet in his name. A further, a second banquet in his name. Now, you with me? Here, when you think about that, when you put those bits of the jigsaw together, can I ask you this? Do you see what you've got in front of you this morning? Do you see what this is here in Esther chapter 7? Would you not agree with me that this is the moment we've been waiting for? We've had the gap, okay. But this is the moment where all of the suspense and this is the second banquet. This is the moment where all of the tension in the the book of Esther has been leading. It all comes down to this, this morning, Esther chapter 7. So, come on, what happens here? Well, perhaps you're visiting the congregation uh, this morning. Perhaps this is your first time at LCPC and you've got up this morning thinking you were going to a Presbyterian congregation and then you've opened doors and you've come in here. And this does not exactly look like a Presbyterian church, does it? It's not the usual simplicity we might expect. It's rather ornate and rather elaborate. And perhaps it's true that a room like this, perhaps it's not the ideal setting for a Presbyterian service. And perhaps instead it is actually the sort of ideal setting maybe for a banquet. Would you not agree? Is it not? And so this is what I'd ask you to do, especially for the boys and the girls at the back. That just for a moment, if we could imagine that this banquet that we're reading about in Esther chapter 7, that it would take place in here. Now can you? I know it's early in the morning, you've got to put your imagination into gear, but can you picture it? You know, over there, maybe at the aisle, you've got a big long table. And you've got King Xerxes seated there at his throne. And there's been, over the course of the day, lots of dancing. No chairs in here. Dancing, singing, and music, and lots of food at this banquet. And you'll have noticed in Esther, a lot of wine at the banquet as well. And what happens in Esther 7? All of a sudden... Xerxes stands up from his throne. And you can imagine the music just stops. There's all the dances stop. Shh. And the silence, isn't there? And he looks across the banqueting hall. And he sees his wife. And what does he say? Esther, enough is enough. You know, you've, you've had your fun. You've been inviting me to these banquets and this is great. But I want to know, Esther, why did you risk your life 
I mean, this must be incredibly serious for you to enter my presence. What is it you're doing? What is it, Esther, you want from me? You can picture that. You can sense the tension here, can you not? So here's my question. How does she answer him? Look at it with me. Look at verse 3. Now, if you look at verse 3, let's just take technical just for a moment or two. I think it's important. Do you notice exactly what it is that Esther does here? She, I think, in order to honor her husband and to try and get him on side, she mirrors his language. Now, we're saying that that Xerxes is standing there in the banquet hall and he's asking her effectively, what is it you want from me? But do you notice how he does it? He does it in two parts. He's got two sides to that question. Do you see that? He asks her, what is your petition? So that's one side, petition. And then do you see the, the other side of it? What is your request? And Esther's clever, isn't she? Like she, she's trying to get him on side. So she mirrors, she follows that language. And look how she ends what she says in verse 3. What's her request? Her request is for the people. The people. Now, isn't that what you're expecting her to say? Like he's saying, what do you want? Why did you risk your life? What did we expect her to say? We expect her to say, I've risked my life for the Jews. I've risked my life. I, I, uh, King Xerxes, what I want you to do is actually not follow through with this decree of destruction. We expect her to say, my request is for the people. But what's the second part of what she says? Have a look. Do you see what she says? What's how she begin it? My petition is for, wow, for my own life. Like she's, do you see what this is? Do you see what Esther is doing at this very moment? This is the point that Esther reveals herself to be a Jew. Do you see it? That significant moment is happening here and now. That even though it may cost her her entire life, what Esther is doing in that banqueting hall at that moment, and listen to me, she is identifying herself with this condemned race. Now, I, I would ask you to just think about that for a moment. She's revealing herself to be a Jew. She's identifying herself with the people. But wait a minute, could she not have played it another way? Is that not what you're thinking, perhaps? Like, earlier in the sermon series, we said that at this point, Esther has been in this Persian palace for five years, or over five years. And in that time, five long years, no one suspected at all that she's a Jew. So you've got no one in the citadel of Susa has any idea at all that she is a Jew. Could she not have here just asked for the deliverance of the Jews and not, you know, kept quiet about her ethnicity, not said anything about the fact that she's a Jew? Could she not have done that? But come on, friends. What is it at this moment that Esther knows? Deep down, she knows that the only way, the only way to save her people is if she, the Persian queen, ties her feet to theirs. So what does she do? Surely to the shock of everyone in the banqueting hall, she stands and she identifies herself with the Jews. 
Now let's return to the theme this morning. Can you remember how we started the sermon? It wasn't that long ago. Are we gospel people? Are you a gospel-thinking Christian this morning? Are you? If so, I wonder, are you just now, even now, looking on this identification with gospel eyes? Are you? Let me put it to you like this. Imagine it goes like this today. You stay to the end of the, the service. You stay for the fellowship lunch, maybe. You have some food. And then you're making your way home. Either by tube or out in the street, you meet somebody you know, which actually happens surprisingly frequently in London. You meet somebody you know. You start speaking to them and they say, what have you been up to? And you tell them you've been at church. And they say, well, actually, I've got a question for you. See, this gospel that I hear Christians talking about, the gospel, can you tell me what is it about the gospel that's so special? Like, you know, my Christian friends, they, they say, they talk about the good news to me. What is about this news that is so good? What is so special about the gospel? Friends, how would you answer that question? If that question is asked to you today, how would you answer that question? Let me ask you this. Could you not even mention the reality of what we're seeing in Esther chapter 7? Do you see? Do you see that what Christ Jesus has done for his people in so many ways it is just a greater version of what we're dealing with here? Is it not? Is it not? That our sovereign too, that he has looked on and seen what a condemned people And what has he done in the person of his son? What has God done in the person of his son? He has condescended to draw alongside and identify with us. And I'm saying to you this morning, is that not one of the peaks? Is that not some of the grandeur of the gospel? Think of it, a holy God and a sovereign God and a creator God seeing right to identify with people like you and people like me. Isn't it, isn't it marvelous? Isn't it? And isn't it exactly what is confirmed for us even in the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, have you never, have you never wondered about that? Why, oh, wait a minute, why was, why was Jesus baptized? We baptized Robson. And we baptized Lulu. And why did we do that as a congregation? We did it as a sign and symbol that their sin has forevermore been washed away by the blood of the Lamb. But wait a minute. What do we know? We know that our Lord Jesus Christ, He has no sin. No sin. Why then would he be baptized? Why be baptized? You see it, do you not? Do you not see it? Partly, it was to show that he had come, why? Not for himself. He had come not for his own self-gratification. Why had he come? He had come for us. Do you see the marvel of it all? He was baptized. Partly, why? To show that he had come to identify and identify with the condemned. And I think honestly and truly this morning there is enough. If we meditate on that, 
there is enough spiritual food in that glorious truth to last our lifetimes. Because you see it, don't you? God could have left you alone. He could have left you alone justly, rightly. He could have left you in your condemnation and, 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 and sin and facing judgment. And he did not. And at great cost to himself, by grace, what has he done? He has intervened and he has identified with us, with his people. No wonder we call it good news. What a message we have. So we see here identification. There is an identification with Esther with a condemned people. There is something else that we must notice in this portion of Scripture. We also see here, not just identification, but destruction. And we see here the destruction of the enemy of God. The destruction of the enemy of God, of Haman. Okay? If we are, I think if we're going to try and understand uh, Esther chapter 7 properly couple of things that we have to, to do and to notice. Two things, perhaps, that we have to notice if we're going to understand this properly. The first one is that we, we really have to try and appreciate <laughs> the difficulty that Esther is facing in that banqueting hall. Like we've got to try and appreciate the, the size of the task that Esther has on her hands in this banqueting hall. So you, see, you think about it. She knows that the fate of her people, the fate of the Jews, is not just tied to herself. The fate of her people is also tied to the fate of their enemy. This brute guy. You know, this horrible, wicked guy, Haman. Now, you see what I mean by that, do you? Haman hates the Jews. He's the enemy of the Jews. And even if King Xerxes at this point was to say, oh, you want your people freed? Okay, no problem. Even if that were to happen, I hope you understand that Haman's not going to give up. Remember, we've said he is an egotistical megalomaniac, this guy, Haman. And what's true? He's been publicly shamed by Mordecai. He hates Mordecai. And he hates Mordecai's people. He truly is the enemy of the Jews. And he's not giving up until every single one of these people is dead. And so are you beginning to see the problem and the difficulty that Esther faces? Because I'm asking you, who's Haman? Who's Haman? Haman is the king's right-hand man. Like Haman is the... Where will we go with this? Haman is the, the Keith Richards to Xerxes McJagger. You know, he is uh, the sort of Joe Biden to Xerxes Obama. He's the second to come out. Haman is the guy that Xerxes goes to for advice. And what does Esther have to do in order to save her people? She has to pursue this influential man's downfall. So you begin to see the, the, the problem she's got on her hands here. But what's, what else have we seen in this sermon series? Yeah, yes. We've seen that this woman, Esther, that she, in times of pressure and times of difficulty, she can be one very clever, ingenious, intelligent woman. 
And I want you to see how that is brought out in this portion of Scripture. So, follow me in this. I wonder, did you notice when Gabriel was reading out Esther 7, did you notice that nowhere from verses 1 to 5 does Esther mention Haman by name? Now, she does it in verse 6, but in this initial interaction with Xerxes in the banqueting hall, you might expect her to say, tell you what I want, see this guy Haman. Let me tell you what he's been doing. But she doesn't do that. Like she, it's, she speaks sort of passively about everything. And nowhere in verses 1 to 5 does she mention Haman by name. Now, do you see why that is? Do you see what she's up to? Esther here is trying to arouse the anger of the king. She's trying to get him really livid, really angry before she reveals the perpetrator of the crime. Do you see it? She's trying to get him absolutely furious, enraged that anyone would dare threaten his queen. Get him livid, get him furious before she reveals the culprit. And so, let me ask you, what happens when eventually Haman is unveiled and revealed? What happens? Xerxes is furious. Like, he is mad. He is raging. So what does he do? He does turn against his right hand man. Just see it. I mean, it's, it's a work of genius, isn't it? What a marvelous plan Esther has here. So, you get it? We, if we're going to understand Esther 7, we've got to appreciate what Esther's doing. We've got to appreciate the difficulty and the, the, the mastery of her plan. There's a second thing I want to add to it. Like, if, if we're going to understand Esther chapter 7 properly, here's the deal. You and I must come to this portion of scripture armed with everything we've seen thus far in Old Testament scripture. Like, if we're going to understand Esther chapter 7, we have to come to this portion of Scripture armed with what has been said already in the Bible. So, I'm going to ask you a question. And uh, when I was initially going to ask you this question, I thought, well, it's not that difficult a question. But now, five weeks later, it's a bit more of a difficult question. And I'm going to ask you to think back over the sermon series. Okay, here's the question. What have we said was special about Haman? Do you remember? What did we say was special about this man? Who was Haman? How was he introduced to us in the book of Esther? Do you remember? He is Haman whom the Agagite. See what that means? Do you remember? That he is a direct descendant of the wicked Amalekite king that King Saul refused to kill in First Samuel. Do you see the role that Haman played in the book of Esther? In the book of Esther, he stands as a symbol of ungodliness. He stands in the book of Esther as a, as a symbol of direct opposition to God. So wait a minute. Do you see it? Do you see what Esther has been able to do in these verses and in Esther chapter 7? Do you see what she's been able to do? She's been able to do what King Saul was unwilling to do in 1 Samuel. Here, 
she is able through extraordinary means to defeat the enemy of her people. Here in this chapter, she is able to defeat the great enemy of God at last. Isn't that what's happening here? And friends, let me say this. I've said it before from the pulpit and I'll say it again. Isn't this something we're guilty of? That we as reformed Christians in this country, that we think too infrequently about the work and the activity of Satan. Isn't that true of us? That uh, we think too little about the reality of the evil one and his work that I think other Christian denominations, maybe even in the city, and Christians from, from other parts of the world, don't they put us to shame in their awareness, in their thinking about the devil? Well, friends, I I ask you, let's not make that mistake this morning. Because isn't it true that what we are seeing in these verses here, that it is pointing us forward to a lesson about Satan? Isn't that right? That this chapter, Esther chapter 7, that it is again propelling us forward to Calvary. That it is pointing us to the what? To the final and to the ultimate defeat of our greatest foe. That what Christ Jesus has done for his people again through extraordinary means is he has at Calvary secured the downfall of our greatest enemy. Isn't that one of the wonders of the gospel of grace? Our enemy, Satan, defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say this to you this morning, is that not a reason for rejoicing even on this very Sunday? Even today, as you leave this place, shouldn't your heart be moved? Shouldn't you be warned by that truth? That the Lord Jesus Christ has crushed the serpent's head. Isn't that a reinforcing truth to your Christian faith? Isn't it? And what do we read in First John 3? That the Son of God appeared. And I ask you, why did he appear? He appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And yes, yes, it's true that just like in the book of Esther, this great defeat will, the outworkings of it, will take some time to be completed. It's true. But listen to these words and ponder them. That the one today who, like Haman, was seeking the destruction of the people of God, what is true of him? What can we rejoice in this morning? Finally, forever, eternally, his fate It's secured. Our enemy's end has already come. And it came at Calvary. Do you see why we must be gospel-centered people? Ours is a great message. But what is it? Effectively, essentially, ours is a message of victory. And it's a message of victory eternally over evil. So we see identification with the condemned people. We see the destruction here of the enemy of God. The last thing that I want us to consider is the satisfaction 
satisfaction of a sovereign's wrath. The satisfaction of a sovereign's wrath. The BBC um, likes to portray itself as the home of good drama. Isn't that right? I was thinking about whether I got the tagline right on the way to church this morning. That's right though, isn't it? Yeah, that's what you see in the adverts. The BBC, the home of good drama. Something like that anyway. Well, isn't it true that the closing of this chapter, the scene that we have before us, the end of Esther chapter 7, uh, surely one of the most dramatic scenes you, you can imagine. Uh, think about it. We're back in the banqueting hall here. And what's just happened? Do you see the drama? You've got the Persian queen Esther declaring herself to be under the sentence of death. Imagine the drama of that. And then surely you've got Haman at this point holding his head in his hands, you know, unable to believe that he has unwittingly sentenced his queen to death, right? Come on, you can sense the, the tension in the air. So there's drama about Esther. There's drama about Haman. But wait a minute. Upon whom does most of the drama center at the end of this chapter? It's not Esther. And it's not Haman. The drama centers around Xerxes, doesn't it? Because you see what happens? He's so angry with Haman. You can imagine he throws his hands in the air, maybe overturns a table or two. What does he do? He charges outside. Do you see that? He leaves everything. He leaves his wine and his feast. And he charges storms outside to the palace gardens. Now, you answer me this. Why does he do that? Like, why at this particular moment does Xerxes storm off at sight? Like, what's, what's going on in his mind? Why has he gone outside? Do you see it? It is because he too now is in a bit of a predicament, isn't he? You see, yes, he is absolutely determined to put this wicked man to death for the offense against his queen. But what's true for Xerxes? What did we say at the start of the sermon? What has he done? He was, <laughs> he was the guy that rubber stamped the decree. He was the guy who approved this decree of destruction. So you see what he's thinking. How am I going to be able to put this guy to death while at the same time keep my own honor intact? You see it? Well, thankfully for Xerxes. <laughs> oh, Haman, Haman. He unwittingly comes to Xerxes aid because okay Xerxes is storming back and forth outside what's happening in the banqueting hall in the banqueting hall Haman is busy breaking Persian law and I love it and I haven't cleared this by my wife but <laughs> I'm enforcing this Persian law when my girls grow up a wee bit Okay, so Ellie Rose and Juliet, when they get a good bit older, I'm enforcing this Persian law. Because in Persian law at the time, here was the rules. No man 
was allowed within seven steps of the women of the palace. I'm enforcing that rule when my girls get older. No man allowed within seven steps of the women of the palace. But what's happened, people? What's happened? So desperate is Haman to save his skin. He's panicking. What does he do? He approaches the queen, doesn't he? Breaks the law. And he falls into her lap just as Xerxes is re-entering into the banqueting hall. And you see, it's perfect. Perfect type of Xerxes is concerned because now he's got the excuse he needs to put this wicked man to death. Perfect. So let's end. Let's end. But let's end by me asking you this. I know that he is a wicked man, Haman. And he's done some truly awful things. But see, when you read of the details of his actual death and demise, does it not Does it not bring a sense of foreboding? Does it not send a shiver down your spine? The details of how he dies. Do you see what happens? Xerxes comes in, sees him fall on his wife. And as soon as Xerxes speaks, Haman is engulfed in darkness, isn't he? Can you imagine that? You know, men approach and they they pull something over Haman's head. He's engulfed in darkness. It's horrible. And then do you see the dark irony as well? What happens at that point? He is whisked away by these men to be hanged from the same, the same tall wooden stake that he directed for Mordecai. The same stake, the same gallows, you see? Irony. And then we read the last sentence. Do you see it? As Haman's breath ends, you know, his life expires. As he hangs from that tall wooden stake, as he dies, what are we told? Do you see? The king's fury subsides. His wrath relents. What a And so I ask you again this morning, even as you look at that terrible death, do you not look at it with gospel eyes? Do you not? See, what is true? What did we need if we as a people were going to be saved and delivered from the destruction of death, this decree that sat over us, what did we need? You see that we needed a death. A death was necessary for us. And it would have to be a, a death like none other. Isn't that right? It would have to be death that in dealing with sin would somehow satisfy the wrath of mighty God at those who had offended and rebelled against him. Do you see, a death was necessary. Why are we here? Why are we here? 
this morning. What is the glory of the gospel? That that death is no longer necessary. Because Christ Jesus, our Lord, has died that death. And I ask you this, how did he die? Do you see how he died? In a moment of Calvary, he was engulfed in darkness. The terror of that. And he, our Lord Jesus Christ, was hanged from a tall wooden stake for us. And you see what happened. That in his own sin-bearing, sin-atoning death, what has he done for us? Will you listen to these words if you're a Christian? What is true? What has he done? He has entirely exhausted the anger of God at you and your sin. It's exhausted. It has been entirely satisfied. Isn't that reason for joy this morning? So let me end with this appeal from this day forward. Let's make sure that London City Presbyterian Church, that it is entirely revolving around this gospel. It's be people who don't just seek to teach our kids some good lessons about life. Instead, let's teach them the old, old story. And when they're young, let's teach them the, the good news. And, and let's be people, you and I, who don't just go out and say a few nice platitudes about Christian values and about church. Let us then fight them, not just to church, but to Christ. And then last and most importantly... From this day forward, we don't come in here to worship in a mechanical, in a dry, in a cold, in a vague way. We come in prayed up and we come in ready to worship God for who he is and for what he has done for us. And what is that? What has God done for us in Christ? He's identified with us as sinners. And he's defeated our greatest enemy and on that cross. What has he done in his sin-bearing death? He has forevermore satisfied the anger of an almighty and perfect God at people who are wicked and sinful and evil. Hasn't he? Would you do this with me just now? Would you, would you join me in praising almighty God for the good news of the gospel? Friends, let's pray.